First You Think is a not-for-profit ministry of the First Unitarian Church of Des Moines. Support us at ucdsm.org today. On tomorrow's painted wagon, in a yester-dreaming day, I rode to heaven never thinking I'd be back this way. Now I'm standing at your doorstep with my halo turning gray. Open up your gate, Mariana. Lay me down in the dark womb of your love. Mother, I sought the chosen people, but I found no one to comfort me. Lay me down in the dark womb of your love. Mother, I climbed the highest steeple. I found nothing to believe. When they called my faults against the wall, I took my place in line and put my trust in priestly men to break the ties that bind. But their straight and narrow highways, just a row of billboard signs. Open up your gate, Mariana. So I set my feet to walking from the sidewalk to the sand in search of any saint or sage who knew the master plan. I wandered every back road in that broken, promised land. Open up your gate, Mariana. As lightning burns these bridges under, smoke will surely rise as the fables of my innocence blow lazy through the skies. When timeless truths reveal themselves as little more than lies, open up your gate, Mariana. Sticks and stones might break this body, and words might wound my soul, and phantom visions fly me to where the faithful fear to go. But when the story's over and my sun is sinking low, open up your gate, Mariana. Mother, I climbed the holy mountain. I found nothing to believe. These are the lyrics from the folk ballad, Mother I Climbed, by Tracy Grammer. We hear an allegory told by a young woman who returned home from an intense journey deep into the institutions of her faith, the church, the clergy, the scholars, the devoted, to see truth with a capital T laid before her and to know with conviction where to orient her heart. As a person who has reset my own faith once or twice before, I find the song to be deeply touching and provocative. I have always thought spiritual music was intended for worship, the ecstatically chant of praise, joy, salvation, and love. How strange it was to be moved by a lamentation of this lonely, empty-handed journey, a journey, I am sure, that so many of us in this room have endured before. The Latin root of the word religion means binding. This makes doubt difficult to discuss in religious circles due to the fear of the individual untethering themselves from God. Some religions, some religious leaders acknowledge doubt as an inevitable and normal part of faith, from Abraham to Moses to the disciple Thomas. Many biblical fig- figures experience hesitations about God, Jesus, and his promises, But for some religious perspectives, doubt is tolerated so long as it is dealt with. Any skepticism is viewed as a test of truth and trust between the individual and their faith. Are you questioning because you've been misled by a heretic's teachings? Has the devil infected your mind? Are you confused because you neglected your scripture and attending church? Are you relying on your personal thoughts and feelings rather than the facts of the written word? Religious leaders may tolerate doubt, but caution the path that the person takes with it. 
Use your doubt to ask curious questions and to strengthen your faith, they encourage. But if you obsess over your thoughts for too long, you may be tempted into the sin of choosing unbelief. Doubt may be a part of your faith, but unbelief cannot. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says sternly, Trust the Lord with all your heart and learn not lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. From what I could see in these lyrics, this woman never faltered once in her journey. She tirelessly sought comfort, forgiveness, enlightenment from people she was told would be wise, chosen, and righteous. And after meeting them, she ended up lost, alone, and betrayed. It was her own experience that painfully wrought the falsehoods of that religion from her spirit and freed her from a prison that she lovingly and devotedly called home. In the aftermath of her crisis, she courageously prays for love and mercy from one remaining holy figure that I think she still trusts, Mother Mary, to open to her gate, to let her in, to hold this tired, weeping soul. And I wonder, is this a desperate final cry for something to finally believe? or a surrender to love and mercy, a missing piece from the narrator's quest. I want you to think for a moment of how you came through our doors in the first place. Were you once like this young woman who climbed a holy mountain, found nothing to believe, and somehow ended up wandering here? How has doubt allowed you to see what you truly desire, what you hope to accomplish, How has fear diverted you from living a new question? Were you raised to celebrate doubt or hide it? How do you wrestle with it? How much of who you are and where you are right now is because of your doubts? So as for me, I grew up secular. Once in a while, I visited church with friends and family. Those Sundays, it was like a whole nother world had opened up. I was enchanted by the stained glass pictures, the fancy clothes, the billowing organ, organ, the swooning sermons and the stories, Noah and the flood and the animals and the rainbow at the end, Moses and the Pharaoh and the Israelites in the land of milk and honey, the compassionate nativity story, the magic and mercy and sacrifice of Jesus. It was so comforting to be wrapped up in the warm arms of God on those few religious Sunday mornings. While I enjoyed the warm fuzzies of religious occasions, my mom divulged that I was baptized when I was a baby, you know, to appease my grandparents. And that was that. I was saved. I was destined for heaven no matter what. Thanks, Mom and Dad. Appreciate that. (laughs) But as I got older, I yearned for something to do while I was waiting for the afterlife. (laughs) (laughs) To gather wisdom and knowledge. By the time I was 13 or so, my mom sensed my curiosity. So she sat me down and said, now, Catherine, you can go to whatever church you want. You can believe whatever you'd like. Just don't break my heart and become a Baptist. (laughs) I'm looking at her like, why not, Mom? You know, they're Baptists in our family. And she says, because they say that if you don't believe in God, you go to hell. Now, of course, we know that uh, my mom's idea here about Baptist isn't accurate. There are plenty more groups that claim salvation (laughs) 
for themselves and not for others, but the message was clear. Avoid associating with those who claim a narrow path to heaven or hell. I didn't think mom was trying to teach me about what religion was true or not. Instead, she was guiding me to choose a religious community, if I ever did choose one, that was more compassionate and tolerant. In high school, all my friends were enthusiastic, evangelical Christians. One of my friends invited me to an overnight at her church, where there would be lots of fun, games, pizza. And at around 1 a.m., when we were all sedated, sweaty, overstuffed with treats, we gathered into a hall where the lights were dimmed and everything went quiet. And the youth pastor emerged out of nowhere and started speaking to us. And I can't remember if it was 10 minutes later or 30 minutes later, but I remember that my sleepy head was like bowed toward the ground and I raised my hand up like this. With the others, I was just like woozily consenting to accept Jesus into my heart. And my friend who was there whisked me off into the pastor's office when the sermon was over. And I was thinking to myself, oh, finally, here was the opportunity I was waiting for. I can now get to God and choose my own salvation instead of relying on the insurance of my baptism as a baby. Just a few uh, minutes with the pastor, and I'll be all set. In the room was someone else I went to school with, a boy named Thomas. The pastor turned to Thomas first. It turns out that Thomas wasn't in the room to be saved or to quickly accept things, but to ask the pastor skeptical questions about the fundamental events of the Bible, like, How could the world be populated from just one man and one woman? Meanwhile, my hesitations and misgivings were starting to sprout in my head, but my soul was on the line, so I kept quiet as Thomas and the pastor continued. Then the next thing came from Thomas. He grew up with Thai Buddhism and was bullied by Christian kids not only for his religion but his race too. Thomas pressed the pastor about Christianity and how it could produce kids for self-righteousness, self-righteous and intolerant. When the pastor tried to apologize on behalf of the kids, he too began to get a little curious about Thomas's background, you know, asking him where he was from, where his parents were from, but no, where where are you really from? The air in the room grew really tense as Thomas tried to move things into the next topic. He said, so I'm gay, and that is not going to change. Would your church accept that about me? And the pastor spoke really slowly. He was choosing every word. Well, we have a man here who struggles with the sin of homosexuality, but we have been helping him to overcome it. By this point, Thomas appeared really deflated, hurt, and discouraged, and his questions quieted. The pastor swiveled in his chair to me. In the office, I was of two minds. I was patiently waiting for the pastor's attention, but I was also experiencing the storm of apprehension in my head. My insides were saying, this isn't for you. Get out of here. What happened just now, that didn't feel right. But the pastor just starts talking at me for a few minutes, and then next thing I know, he hands me a copy of the New Testament. I take it in my hands, and the other part of me was thinking to myself, finally, I didn't have to think for myself anymore. The instruction manual to get to God was in my hands. My dear friend was sitting on my left, doubting Thomas on the right. This annoying voice, though, 
nags on and on, are you seriously going to do this? The pastor asks me some simple questions about whether I believed in God, Jesus, and his son, and belief in him is the only way to heaven, you know, yada, yada, to which I naively and obediently say yes. To this day, I remember vividly the shameful and selfish place I was in that night that I didn't stand up for Thomas in any way. I claimed my place to heaven in the aftermath of this bizarre series of racist and homophobic comments incurred onto somebody I knew and somebody I liked. I admire Thomas's brave skepticism, confidence, and wit. Meanwhile, I just shoved my worries down my stomach so I could be awarded God's grace. In fact, I thought that was the better choice to make. For a few months, I tried to suppress my doubts and fears and become a good Christian. After reading the New Testament, I read our entire family Bible from Genesis to Revelations. Taking in everything at face value, I was moved to tears by the loving poetic verses, which anchored my newfound conviction. But then all those boring, prejudiced, absurd, abusive, and confounding parts made me wonder if any of this could have been real in the first place. And then I thought, is this like the actual real truth, like the final word on love, purpose, and meaning? The Quaker pastor Philip Gully writes in his book, Unlearning God, that infallibility is at its heart not the defense of truth, but the protection of ignorance. Later on, Gully says, Infallibility simply does not permit the church to keep pace with enlightenment and discovery. It drapes us in the garb of our spiritual infancy. And even as we outgrow it, it forbids us from donning a garment more fitting, saying it is God's preference that we remain as we always have been. When we question those preferences of God, we are accused of doubt and heresy, the twin signs of the enlightened and thoughtful everywhere and are admonished to return to the truth. Ultimately, what infallibility demands is our steadfast refusal to study matters more closely, more critically, lest the wizard behind the curtain be revealed and we discover that he had nothing to do with God and everything to do with his own power. Rewiring myself to ignore my own experience and sense of right and wrong then to, to then follow God was really difficult. At some point, I noticed my empathy, my thoughts, my emotions changing, was more judgmental of others. It pained me to suddenly see that my non-believing family and friends were now lost souls to me, that they would burn in hell forever because they wouldn't take the same path to salvation as me. When I realized heaven would be a lonely place, I let Christianity go. As I met people of varying faiths in college, I still wanted to believe in something, to prove myself as a good person because God was in my life somehow. The best I could come up with was the old spiritual but not religious alignment. It wasn't until I was surprised to meet a few people who were kind and happened to be atheists that I realized you could be good without God. And so I began to consider atheism for the first time. I dove down the new atheist rabbit hole on the web where Richard Dawkins debated creationists. Sam Harris lectured on the immorality of religion. I read the God delusion in like three or four days. 
while I recognize that atheism itself doesn't hold a system of values and ethics, the spokespeople for it certainly did. And they made it easy for me to channel all my dissatisfaction and disagreement with religion into self-righteous anger. Anger at all the injustices, hatred, destruction, oppression, waste, and selfishness we have seen emerge in the name of religion for ages and ages. And so I emerged as an angry atheist, just like my conversion to Christianity made me wary of the non-believing world, my newfound atheism made me wary of the believing world. The atheism I absorbed lacked a focus on exploring and making meaning, and instead appeared to have a stronger interest in criticizing religious belief in institutions. For both Christianity and atheism, I wonder, thinking back, what if I had just spent more time with either of them? Maybe a few more months or years, what would I have become instead? Could I reach the certainties that they claimed and gain the clarity I had long sought? It just turns out that my mind was still full of questions and some naive impatience. I simply let them go, and time went on. Philip Gully, the Quaker pastor I mentioned a few moments earlier, writes more in Unlearning God that time provides a richer understanding because life and truth aren't always easy. In the summer of 2015, I stepped into First Unitarian for the first time, still seeking a community of like-minded people, actively pursuing spiritual growth. My first UU service ever happened to be one of our quirky summer services. Our minister wasn't behind the pulpit, but instead a young person from our congregation was, speaking about the spiritual teaching of Star Wars. I was blown away that a place like this could exist to allow young people to not just participate, but lead services and speak their own truth. This is what religion can be. This is what can go on in a church, and they call it worship. To me, this seems suitable for what I've always wanted, a loving community that pushes the usual expectations of what a people of faith can be. One thing I love about Unitarian Universalism is that we affirm and promote strong values and beliefs in our seven principles, but none of them claim to be infallible, unshakable, or dogmatic. None of them are one-size-fits-all clothing meant to wear for a lifetime. These words are not meant to be memorized or recited as articles of faith, but rather they are a calling for our many hands to carry forth light, light, hope, and justice. Our living tradition allows us to explore the landscape of these principles through science, poetry, scripture, personal experience, and so much more to grow. The third and fourth principles have always resonated with me. The third says, acceptance of one another and encouragement to spiritual growth in our congregations. And the fourth says, a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. They encourage us to evolve, celebrate, and respect not only our personal convictions, but also our misgivings, our fears, and our struggles. Unitarian Universalism is not founded on answers, nor do we provide abject permission to just wallow in fear, adversarial doubt, or cynical skepticism. Instead, UU Reverend Page says of the fourth principle, As a faith tradition, Unitarian Universalism makes sacred the right 
and responsibility to engage in this free and responsible quest as an act of religious devotion. Institutionally, we have left open the questions of what truth and meaning are, acknowledging that mindful people will, in every age, discover new insights. When we choose Unitarian Universalism to be our guide for spirituality, ethics, and justice, we also take on the gifts, burdens, and unanswered questions of making a meaningful life in the face of the wonder, mystery, absurdity, and unfairness in this whole place. And those seven principles, just because they don't mention God, heaven, or hell, that doesn't make them easier to accomplish or have faith in. The nature of our work in seeking peace and justice forces us to wrestle with uncertainty, playing a role in either disrupting or encouraging what we hope to accomplish. Is this course of action going to create the change that we want to see? When we speak truth to power, what are the chances that they will listen to and act alongside us? Will this person or group be the right fit to lead us to where we want to go? Is this undertaking worth it? Are we helping? Am I the right person to contribute? And I am I enough? Am I being enough right here, right now? The medieval Jewish scholar and philosopher Maimonides said, teach your tongue to say, I don't know, and ye shall progress. Saying those three small words to ourselves highlights our frailty, our humanity, and humility, yes, but they also have the power to make us receptive to creativity, outside knowledge, and insight, to see more of what is possible, what can be seized, what can be made new. Then we can become a mindful people in this age to discover new ideas and move forward. We can become what the people of the past have hoped for and the people of the future to look back to for wisdom if we take action. We, as a liberal-minded faith, have the power through our visibility and activity to educate and advocate against age-old bigoted ideas to change minds, to sow seeds of doubt that can dismantle systems of intolerance, harm, and injustice, to say to the world, it doesn't have to be this way anymore. Let's try something else. To imagine and promote building systems of fairness, restoration, equity, and love. To uplift those from despair, fear, and pain. To turn on the light in every searching soul that comes through our doors with the words, you are loved, you matter, you are whole, you belong in this world. Why not build a faith pointing us to the greater possibilities of love, of hope, of justice. Why not do a little bit of doubting every day, commit your own personal heresies? Why not turn over a few more stones? Why not ponder the mystery and wonder of your existence? Why not look upon another with kind, curious eyes? Why not sing aloud, I don't know, like an operatic aria? Why not take a leap of doubt and see what you'll find? I want to leave you with these wise words by UU Reverend Dr. Michael A. Schuler. Cherish your doubts, for doubt is the servant of truth. Question your convictions for beliefs too, highly, too, highly, too tightly held 
strangle the mind and its natural wisdom, suspect all certitudes, for the world whirls on, nothing abides. Yet in our inner rooms full of doubt, inquiry, and suspicion, let a corner be reserved for trust. For without trust, there is no space for communities to gather or for friendships to be forged. Indeed, this is the small corner where we connect and reconnect with each other.